0: This is episode 20 of the Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published in 1951 by Viking. We're starting Section 4, Hiram Gill and the Newspapers, 1910-1918. to The meeting of the city council droned on. The evening was warm and the discussion routine. Hiram C. Gill, president of the Seattle City Council, had removed his coat and was sitting in shirt sleeves toying with an unlit pipe. A man hurried through the double doors at the end of the hall, which had been wedged open, and came up to the rail that shut off the councilman's portion of the hall. He motioned to Gill, and the council president came over to the rail. The man whispered something. Gill nodded, went back to the table, interrupted the speaker to explain that he had been called out on business, and turned the gavel over to one of his colleagues. The duty that called the council president away from the meeting was connected with civic affairs. The police had just raided the town's largest brothel, Gill, as the lawyer for the Skid Road brothel keepers, was expected to arrange bail. After seeing that his clients were released, Gill went back to attend to council business, and the girls returned to the house to attend to theirs. Gill's extracurricular activity during the city council meeting brought some angry comment from the righteous, particularly from a gaunt, long-maned Presbyterian minister named Mark A. Matthews, but no one was surprised. There never had been any question where Hiram C. Gill stood with regard to harlots, pimps, and gamblers. He was a lawyer. They were potential clients. Society paid judges to pass on the conduct of their fellow men, and High wasn't a judge. Gill was a skinny man with a bulging forehead and thinning hair. An eastern reporter visiting Seattle described him as having a pinched triangular face, a nervous twitching mouth, and keen but shifty blue eyes. It was an unkind description, but certainly High was no beauty. He knew it, too. Physically undistinguished, he was shrewd enough to adopt sartorial trademarks that made it easy for voters to recognize him a white string tie, a Stetson hat, and a corncob pipe. He was a fake hick. He'd been to law school in Wisconsin, and his father had been a colonel in the Grand Army of the Republic, but High assiduously acted the role of lubber. He was careful to appear often in shirt sleeves. He was self-consciously casual in his speech. I'll be just the same as now if I'm elected mayor, he told the voters after he filed for office in 1910. If Bill Taft comes to Seattle, I'll wash my face and put on a dress suit. But I'll smoke a cob pipe if I want to, as long as I teach no one else the habit. Gill believed in letting people alone. If a man wanted to go to hell, High was unwilling to set up roadblocks. He didn't believe morality could be enforced by legislation, and he didn't believe it was healthy to try to keep a town closed, especially a seaport town on the frontier. Strict law enforcement, he argued, merely drove prostitution and gambling underground. Somewhere in the city, Gill wrote in a formal statement of his views, occupying about a hundredth of one percent of its area, these unfortunates, whose lives are gone, most of them beyond recall, will go. They will move out of the resident districts and the apartment houses and the hotels of the city. They will stay out. In an off-the-cuff campaign speech, he phrased it more naturally. What Seattle needs is a mayor who will get a chief of police to handle the restricted district, who will back the chief up when the delegations of citizens call in protest, one who will stand by the chief of police. And I'm the bird. He was, too. On March 7, 1910, the voters elected him mayor of Seattle by 5,000 votes. I don't pretend to be a very good man, Hyde said when he was sworn in, but I know the law and will enforce it. To enforce the law for Seattle's 230,000 inhabitants, High picked a peculiar instrument. As chief of police, he named Charles W. Wappenstein. Gill's chief was the same Wappenstein whose grafting had led to William Meredith's resignation and indirectly to his death at the hands of John Considine. Wappy, as he was almost invariably called by friend and opponent, was a mixture of frontiersman, tout, and tammany politico. He was a soft-spoken man of considerable personal warmth. Physically, he was short and a bit shaggy, with a scraggly mustache, a great wart on his left cheek, and owlish circles around his eyes. He affected tight, pinstripe suits and narrow-brimmed derbies. He looked, according to the post-intelligencer, which didn't admire him, like a somewhat disreputable walrus. Even that paper admitted that Wappi was an able policeman. When he wanted to, he could enforce the law with the best. But he had come of age in Cincinnati when Cincinnati was perhaps the most corrupt city in the country, and when he migrated to Seattle in 1898, he found a wide-open town. He had no trouble adapting his morals to those of Gold Rush Seattle. In fact, he adapted them a little too well, with the result that he was kicked out by Mayor Humes. Woppy then went to work as an investigator for the Great Northern and became a protege of J.D. Farrell, a highly political vice president of the railroad. Farrell, though nominally a Democrat like his employer, Jim Hill, became something of a Republican boss in Washington State dominating the votes of the Republican majority on issues affecting the railroads. In 1906, Judge William Hickman Moore, a milk-and-water reformer, was the fusion candidate for mayor, running on a platform that called for a closed city and municipal ownership of utilities. Boss Farrell's brother worked in Judge Moore's law office. To the amazement of the reformers, Farrell threw his support to Moore. It turned the trick. Moore won the closest election in the history of Seattle's municipal politics. All that Farrell asked in return for his support was the appointment as chief of police of his friend and protege, Charles Wappenstein. Moore's reformist friends raised anguished objections, but the grateful mayor appointed Wappie, and Wappie gave the town what one of the reformers called the best police administration Seattle ever had. In 1908, Judge Moore was defeated for re-election, and Wappie lost his job to a friend of the new mayor. Wappie was bitter. You see, he told friends, people don't really want a clean city. They just say they do. When Gill chose him to give Seattle the sort of police administration they had voted for in 1910, Wappi was ready to oblige. The six months following Gill's inauguration must have been the happiest of Wappi's life. The mayor had said he wanted a chief who could run their restricted district, and Wappi knew just how it should be run wide open. On the afternoon of the day he was sworn in, Wappi strolled into Gerald's barroom and closeted himself with Clarence Gerald, the manager of the saloon, and Gideon Tupper, two of the more important figures in Seattle nightlife. There will be a chance for all of us to make some money, Woppy told them happily. Then he moved from the general economic picture to the particulars of supply and demand. He told Tupper to lease the Midway, a crib house of more than a hundred rooms, and to open up as soon as possible. Tupper did. Once the Midway was in operation, Woppy called Tupper to the police station, complimented him on his quick work, and suggested that it would be a good idea to open the Paris house on a similar basis. Tupper tried to oblige, but reported back that he couldn't get a lease, the owner of the building thought Tupper was not financially responsible. Wappi told the discouraged entrepreneur not to worry, he'd fix things. He got on the phone and told the hesitant landlord that Tupper was all right and that he himself stood ready to guarantee Tupper's financial integrity. Soon the Paris house was in business too. Wappi had a politician's natural desire to be helpful to his supporters, but in his aid to Gerald and Tupper, he was actuated by other considerations as well. As Tupper explained to a grand jury later, he agreed on my paying him $10 a woman. It was monthly. The first payment was made along, I think, about the 1st of May. It was $1,000. I made the same payment every month, in his office. At $10 per month per harlot, Wappy was doing all right financially. There were at least 500 women in the Skid Road establishments, and the chief knew the whereabouts of each of them. He turned the talents which made him, even in the eyes of an enemy, a master detective, toward seeing he was not shortchanged on protection payments. The cops who patrolled the skid road were required to make periodic reports on the number of girls in each house. An occasional patrolman made trouble by raiding an establishment where protection had been paid or by engaging in a shakedown on his private initiative. But such mavericks were quickly transferred to outlying residential districts or put to pounding beats along the windswept stretches of the waterfront. Woppy had everything under control. His interest extended beyond putting Seattle's sex on a paying basis. While Tupper organized the bigger brothels under his supervision, Gerald, who ran the barroom where Mayor Gill and his cronies met for lunch, took over the city's gambling. He bought into the Northern Club, a gaming establishment, which under his direction became, in the eyes of a national magazine, one of the greatest spectacles of the Pacific Northwest. Several national magazines, most noticeably Harper's and McClure's, began to pay attention to the peculiar law enforcement practices in Seattle. Reporters for McClure's had been raking through the muck of municipal corruption from one end of the country to the other, but one of McClure's case-hardened muckrakers found the size and openness of the Northern Club's gambling operations hard to believe. McClure said flatly after the Northern had been closed, No American city has ever seen anything comparable with it. The most hardened sports, after a glimpse at the club's openly exhibited wonders, would telegraph to their pals to come to Seattle and inspect it, if only as a curiosity. In order not to lose any possible patronage, The Northern Club ran 24 hours a day, including Sunday, utilizing the services of three shifts of employees. At the door, barkers were regularly stationed. Gambling upstairs, gentlemen, they would call to the passing crowds. There were cappers, located at convenient points, who made a specialty of teaching high school boys how to beat the game, instruction which, as these young men subsequently learned, was entirely misleading. Respected and prosperous businessmen frequently found their sons in possession of membership cards, giving them entree to this institution. In the main, however, introductions were not required. A few days after the club opened, a self-appointed committee of Seattle lawyers, curious to learn how Gill was redeeming his open-town pledge, made the rounds. They found the Northern Club filled the suffocation with two or three hundred of their fellow citizens, and from sixty to eighty attendants were solicitously providing for their needs. Everywhere the wheels were clicking and the bones were rolling. A particularly impressive sight was a heavily gold-braided police captain who benignantly elbowed his way in and out of the throng. Seattle was wide open, all right. What if High promise that these unfortunates who lived with sin would move away from the resident areas? That promise was broken. The uptown joints didn't close. High-class whores remained in the high-class hotels. The more select gaming rooms in the business district stayed put. There was one noticeable difference after the restricted area began unrestricted operation. Gambling games blossomed everywhere. McClure's reported, The city seemed to have been transformed almost magically into one great gambling hell. All kinds of games simultaneously started up in full view of the public. Cigar stores and barbershops did a lively business in crap shooting and racetrack gambling, drawing their patronage largely from schoolboys and department store girls. In the back of the billiard rooms, poker games were operating as openly as in a mining town. All over the city, flat joints, payoff stations, and dart shooting galleries were reaping a rapid harvest. At one time, it looked as if the whole of Seattle were going mad over faro, roulette, blackjack, and numerous other forms of entertainment provided in the 30 or 40 gambling places opened up under the administration of High Gill. If Gill kept his promise to open the skid road and close the rest of the town, he might have avoided serious trouble, for Seattle wanted a bit of a fling when it elected him. But as Gill put it himself, I may have let things get away from me. Woppy's two associates, Tupper and Gerald, got farthest away. Not content with their profit-making enterprises south of Yesler Way, they decided to establish a super skid road on Beacon Hill, They formed a new corporation, the Hillside Improvement Company, and peddled its stock successfully on the Seattle market. Local buyers knew that the corporation's greatest asset was the cooperation it was certain to get from the city administration. The Improvement Company purchased several acres of land in the southern part of town and hired architects to plan a model red-light district. The central feature in the planned community was to be a 500-room brothel, the biggest in the world. When construction was about to begin, the contractors found their work would be simpler if they were to build 80 feet west of the original site. There was one trouble. Most of that 80 feet was occupied by a Seattle street, so the city council thoughtfully granted the Hillside Improvement Company a 15-year lease on the thoroughfare. A contemporary observer remarked, American cities have voted away their streets to gas companies, electric light lines, and street railways, but Seattle is the first one that ever granted a franchise to a public thoroughfare for the erection of a brothel. The huge building was completed by the autumn of 1911, but it was never occupied by the tenants for whom it was designed. Gill's boys had gone too far. The great barn on Beacon Hill became a symbol of the administration. And there's a footnote below. The building was destroyed in August 1951 when a B-50 from Boeing Field crashed into it. Preachers in the press opened up on vice conditions with the post-intelligencer hitting the hardest. Gillism has allowed enforcers of the law to enter into lewd partnerships with breakers of the law. It has allowed gambling. It has allowed and encouraged graft in the police department. It has allowed a gang of pink-cuff vagrants to plunder the fallen women of the city. It has encouraged drunkenness and debauchery. It has permitted dance hall orgies so shameless in character that they would have shocked the maudlin voluptuaries of the ancient capitals. It has licensed the libertine to prey upon the innocent girlhood of the community. It has shielded sleek vultures who make chattels of women. It has loosened the safe and reasonable restraints of the law so that the criminal could go his wicked way unafraid because unmolested. It has demoralized the departments of the city and reduced their efficiency. It has fostered and encouraged a species of governmental and official favoritism, wholly at variance with the spirit and genius of American political institutions and American law. And we'll stop right there. This is the Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in 1951. We just began the section, called Hiram Gill and the Newspapers, 1910-1918, to which will continue in the next episode. Thanks again for listening to The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell.